0: We have been in a series over the last several weeks called Kingdom Go. We have been going through the book of Acts and just kind of highlighting different events and um, different teachers, different leaders from the early church. And it's been such a great series. Who's enjoyed the series so far? It's been so great. Scott said at the outset that if your faith, if you find your faith being a little bit apathetic, read the book of Acts. And I think that's definitely been true for me as we have looked at just the way that God used the early church and the early church leaders to take the gospel, the good news about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, and knowing that, like, we're still part of that. We are part of Taking it to the ends of the earth. We are the direct beneficiaries of those early church leaders. And it really does just like light a fire inside you, I think, when you just realize what an amazing thing that we are a part of. Um, We're going to continue in this series this morning. We are going to be in Acts chapter 17. Um, But before we jump in, I just kind of want to set us in, plop us into history. I want you to understand where we're at. Because I think when you read through the book of Acts, it seems like things are happening really fast, right? Like it's just like one event after the other. And without doing a little bit of deeper study, it can be a little bit difficult to understand just what the timeline is really like. Because the book of Acts actually spans decades. So if you remember, back towards the beginning of this series, we learned about Paul's conversion at the time he was called Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus like met him face to face and really had this amazing miraculous encounter, right? So that happened somewhere around like 33 to 36 AD. It's hard to pin it down exactly. Well, Paul then was kind of in the shadows for at least a decade. He left on his first missionary journey about 10, maybe 12 years after that. Last week, Scott taught us about the council at Jerusalem and the decision that the apostles made at that council about how the Gentile Christians should be included in the church and whether or not they had to follow the Jewish laws and customs. And that probably took place somewhere around like 48, 49, latest would be 50 A.D., most likely. So we're well past Paul's conversion. 15 or so years have probably passed between the council of Jerusalem and when he was originally converted. And then after the council of Jerusalem, Paul and Silas head out on Paul's second missionary journey, and their intention really was to go back and visit some of the churches that they had started on their first missionary journey, and they also ended up going to other cities as well. So that's where we're picking up as far as the timeline goes. In chapter 17, I want to recap because we're jumping in kind of in the middle of it, what has already happened. So Paul and Silas leave from from Jerusalem, from the Council of Jerusalem, And they go to Thessalonica, and somewhere along the way, they pick up Timothy. So Timothy, Silas, and Paul are in Thessalonica, and they go to the synagogue, and they're preaching the gospel, they're telling people about Jesus, they're using the Old Testament in order to help people understand that it was all pointing to the Messiah, and that Jesus was and is the Messiah. And people were responding, but the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica got really upset, And they drove Paul and Silas and Timothy out. So they go to Berea, another city. And in Berea, they find a much more receptive audience to the gospel. And people are coming to Jesus. The Bereans are searching the scriptures. They're listening to Paul's teaching and verifying that it's true by searching the scriptures. And things are going great. But then the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica hear that they're up to their same mischief in Berea, and they head to Berea. And so Paul, for whatever reason, leaves Silas and Timothy in Berea, and he is escorted to Athens. And he tells the the guys who escorted him, hey, can you have Silas and Timothy meet, 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 meet back up with me as soon as they can? And he's left in Athens on his own. So that's where we're picking up. We're going to jump in in Acts 17. We're going to look first at verse 16 to 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right, we're going to pause there for a minute. There's a few things in this passage that I want to draw your attention to. First, Paul arrives in Athens. He starts walking around. He sees all the idols, and his spirit is provoked within him. I just want to have that stick in your mind. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. And so then what he does is what he always does. Paul always, in every city, he goes to the synagogue first or to the Jews, if there weren't enough men in that city to have a synagogue. He goes to wherever the Jewish people gather and he tells them about Jesus. And then he goes to the marketplace where the Gentiles are. And he starts talking about Jesus there too. So he does that here in Athens. But I want to draw your attention to the word reasoned. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace with whoever happened to be there. Now that word reasoned, the Greek word, forgive me if you're a Greek scholar because I'm not gonna say this right, it's dialogome, that's the Greek word. But it's important because this word means to reason, to discuss, to discourse, to argue, to dispute, and it actually has a kind of connotation of the Socratic method, the use of the Socratic method. Now the Socratic method was a way in which a teacher would pose questions to the students to kind of expose the underlying beliefs and assumptions, the presuppositions that the student already held. And then the teacher uses those very underlying beliefs to kind of poke holes and refute the premise that the student holds. So this was a very intentional, very well-crafted, this was full engagement on Paul's part. He didn't just walk into the marketplace and get up on a soapbox and start Preaching to people, he was asking questions. He was listening. He was seeking to understand the culture that he had come into. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. The second thing I want to point out is that when Paul went to the marketplace, when I think about the marketplace, I think about King Super's Marketplace on 80th and Wadsworth, right? Like, you go and you get your groceries. And commerce did happen in the marketplace, but the marketplace was actually the Greek word is agora. And it means an open space that served as, like, an assembly area. It was a place where people gathered for commercial and civic and social, political, economic, philosophical, philosophical. thank you, (laughs) thank you, Uh, you guys, thank you, (laughs) Um, and religious discussion. So really, like, the marketplace was like the the heartbeat of the culture this is where everybody gathered we, the lead thinkers were there this is where the artisans would come to display their artwork this is where merchants would set up their their stalls to be able to sell their wares this is where the news heralds would come to tell people hey here's what's going on they would herald the news of the day so this was a really really important place in the culture and that's paul goes right to the middle of it right into the middle of it to ask questions, to discourse with the people who were there. The next thing I want you to pay attention to here is who Paul ended up talking with. Now, he probably got into conversations with a lot of people, but the scriptures tell us specifically that he spoke with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, these two worldviews were very prevalent in Athens at the time that Paul Was in the marketplace so the epicurean worldview the epicureans were kind of like the relativists they thought that the most important thing in life the highest goal in life was the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain so that's what they spent their life on and then the stoics they were kind of an opposition to the epicureans in some way because they were the moralists the stoic philosophy said that the development of self-control and of fortitude and logic were the highest virtue. They tried very hard to rise above any pleasure or pain to just accept whatever the moment would bring to them. They wanted to, you know, emotionally detach from anything that was happening. And Paul sharing the gospel butts up against both of these worldviews and catches their attention. And so these people say, well, you know what? You're you're saying some strange stuff. Like, we want to hear more about this. So they bring him to the Oropagus. Now, the Oropagus was a very important, almost sacred site in Athens. It sat on a rocky outcropping up above the marketplace, and had um, very important kind of ancient, even mythological legends tied to it. And it was also the site of ancient democratic proceedings. This is where issues of criminal and civic law were ruled on and where they would gather to talk about the important um, philosophies and religious ideas of the day. So this is a really important place where they bring Paul because they want to hear more about what he's saying. We're going to jump back into the passage now. We're going to look at Acts 17. We're now in verses 22 to 31. This is what Paul says. They bring him to this ancient, important site, and he begins to tell them about the gospel, that this is the most well-crafted, unbelievable, unbelievable presentation of the gospel, I think, recorded in Scripture to the Gentiles. So listen to what he says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, eat and as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, we're gonna stop there again. There's so much we could unpack here and spend forever just looking at this masterful presentation of the gospel. But I just want us to look at a couple of things this morning. First of all, remember at the very beginning of this passage, Paul arrives in Athens and he begins to walk through the city and he just sees idol after idol after idol. And he was mad. It says his spirit was provoked within him. He could have started there. He could have stood up before the Athenians and started blasting them for their idolatry, but he doesn't. Instead, he praises them. He says, men of Athens, I can see that you are very religious. He uses what is sin. Their idolatry is absolutely sin, but instead of bashing them, he builds a bridge. He begins by building a bridge. And then he goes on and he says, you know, as I was looking at all of, all of your places where you worship, I came across this idol to an unknown God. And I'm here to tell you who that is. I know who your unknown God is. Now, it's really interesting. This is just a side note, but I found it interesting. While I was studying, I found that local legend actually said in Athens at the time that this altar to the unknown god was constructed because in ancient times and i mean really ancient because this is ancient times from where paul's standing there was a plague on in the city of athens there was a terrible plague and the people of athens were doing everything they could they were like man we've made the gods mad but which god there's so many of them So they're sacrificing and they're worshiping and they're trying to figure out which God they need to appease and nothing is working. And so one of their philosophers, his name was Epimenides, he said, you know, I have an idea. I think maybe the God who can remove this plague is outside of of our conscience. We don't know about this God. So why don't you build an altar to an unknown God? See if that works, right? They've tried everything else thought they'd build an altar to an unknown God. And local legend has it that this plague does eventually recede. So that's that's how this altar came to be. So then Paul goes on after saying, like, look, I see this altar to the unknown God. I know who it is. And he really expands their ideas about who God is. Because the the greek gods there was a god for everything and they fought with each other and they were always getting mad about something and throwing temper tantrums and having power struggles really they were just us right they were a reflection of what we know of our own broken hearts and humanity and so their view of the of gods of the gods was was really pretty small and petty and paul starts to tell them like no this unknown god I can tell you who he is. He's the creator of everything. He's in charge of everything. He wants to know you. He actually intended for you to live right now, in this place, in this time, so that you might know him. Then he does something that I think is really incredible. If you noticed, um, you may never have seen this before because I sure hadn't, but Paul quotes a, a philosopher, two of them actually. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that is actually a line penned by the same um, philosopher who suggested that they build the altar to an unknown god. This is a classical philosopher named Epimenides. Um, He lived about 600 BC. But he penned, really it was a hymn to the god Zeus. And that line, in him we live and move and have our being, was written by this pagan philosopher and poet about a Greek mythological god, Zeus. And Paul quotes him and says, let me point you to Jesus, because in Jesus, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes another philosopher who lived a couple hundred years after Epimenides. His name was Aratus, And he penned the line also to Zeus that um, we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is doing something very, very intentional here. He is Taking from the Athenians' own culture, language that they would have been familiar with. And not even just language, but worship language, language that was used to describe their their worship to their gods. And he's saying, Oh, let me show you. This is actually directed at Jesus. He's the one in whom these things are true. It's really incredible what he did there. And then he begins to tell them about the, the judgment and the resurrection. And right there, People kind of throw up their hands, and I think Paul gets cut off. I don't know if we actually got to hear the end of what I'm sure would have been an incredible sermon. So let's jump back in. Let's finish the last couple of verses of this chapter. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Isn't that a little bit like, womp, 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 like this amazing presentation of the gospel? And a few believed. We're going to come back to that. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit. We've been placing ourselves in the history of what's happening and kind of trying to bring a little bit of understanding to the significance of the cultural climate um, in this particular place at this particular time. But now I want us to shift gears and ask the question, so what? Like, what can we learn from this? Why does this matter for us today in 2021 in Westminster, Colorado? There's four things that I think we can learn from the way that Paul engaged with the Athenians. The first is, we need to know our audience. Know our audience. Paul began his time in Athens by going to the cultural center of the city and asking questions, engaging, conversing, getting to know his audience. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, "'Live wisely among those who are not believers "'and make the most of every opportunity.'" Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. I believed in Jesus my my whole life, but I didn't start really following Jesus for myself until my later teen years, So when I went off to college, I was still a pretty young Christian. I was still a pretty immature Christian. I was at CSU. I was living in the dorms, and it was one afternoon. I was there by myself. My roommate wasn't there, and somebody knocked on my my dorm door. So I opened the door, and there was this college-age guy standing at my door, and he just started talking. He had a pamphlet or a tract of some kind that he was holding, and he just started talking. And he was basically evangelizing me as if I were an atheist. Now, I'm not knocking him because it takes a lot of guts as a college kid to just go knock on dorm rooms and, you know, start talking to people. But he was answering a lot of questions that I wasn't asking because I wasn't an atheist. I was actually a believer already, but I was an immature believer. I had a lot of questions They just weren't the questions he was answering. And if he would have taken a little bit of time to talk to me and find out where I was at and what kind of questions I was asking, I wonder if we would have had a very different conversation. I think it's important for us as believers in 2021 to think about our audience, think about our culture, kind of big picture. Where are the pain points in our culture? What questions? Are the culture around us asking and then also a little bit more individually in our own lives our own circles of influence our own family and friends and coworkers and neighbors classmates what questions are they asking because the thing is Jesus is always relevant in every season in every time period in every culture and in every situation Jesus is always relevant sometimes it's our message that isn't the second thing We can learn from this passage in Acts is to find common ground. As soon as Paul started to address the Athenians, he built a bridge. He said, Gosh, we don't have a lot in common, right? But we are both religious, we are both spiritual, so that's where I'm gonna start. If that's all I've got, that's where I'm gonna start. And that's what he does. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23, Paul says, When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law, so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ." When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. We need to find common ground. I think that sometimes, in a desire to set ourselves apart to be holy as God is holy, we end up pulling back from relationships, from activities, from circles that we were a part of because we were fearful of like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that anymore. I don't know. Please hear me. I am not saying go on sinning. There's absolutely things that we cannot do and follow Jesus. We cannot love God and love people in some behaviors Paul says in uh, Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying go on sinning. But what I do want to ask us, and what I know in my own life, in my early days of following Jesus, I absolutely pulled back from friendships, from places that I was previously really involved in, out of this desire to to be holy. But really what I did was I lost opportunities and I lost influence. Sometimes we draw lines in the sand way before scripture draws lines in the sand, way before the Holy Spirit would pull us back. We're like out of there. So I think one challenge to us is to press in, press into the places where God has you and find common ground. Go to your neighborhood block parties. Go out with your co-workers after work. Join that study group at school. Whatever it is, engage in the culture around you. That will allow you to know your audience and to find common ground. It will give you opportunities to love people well and to point them to Jesus. The third thing that we can do, that we can learn here, is to trust the truth. If I put myself in Paul's shoes, standing before the Athenians, he was a Jewish Christian standing before pagan Gentiles and getting ready to try to bring them the truth and the good news about Jesus. And I can imagine being fearful and hesitant and timid. I know I experience that now in my real life. If I'm talking to somebody who I don't have a lot in common with or who I just don't know very well, it can be scary to be like, well, is Jesus relevant? But the answer is yes. Jesus is always relevant. So trust the truth. You can tell people. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can tell people what Jesus has done in your life. You can talk about your own experience and your own faith, and you can trust the truth of the gospel to come through your words. Jesus tells us in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many know that people need to be set free? People need to be set free. And the only way for somebody to find true freedom is in Jesus. So let's not hold that back. Let's trust the truth. First John 5.20 um, is another just reminder that we really do know the true God. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life. Let's trust in that truth. And then finally, let's leave the results up to the Lord. I kind of tried to flag this in your mind a little bit earlier, but at the end of Paul's address to the Athenians, only a few people believed. Only a few people came to Jesus. And I can imagine that it would have been tempting to feel pretty discouraged in that. I'm sure you can relate if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody, invited somebody to come to church with you or come to home group with you, and they didn't respond or things got awkward in the relationship. There's a temptation to feel like you have failed, right? But the thing is, the results, those aren't up to us. Our job is to be faithful and to be obedient. That's it. God's the one in charge of the results. God, it's only by him that we come anyway. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It doesn't matter how eloquent we are or how not eloquent we are. It doesn't matter how convincing our argument is or how much we stumble. It's not us that speaks people into the kingdom of God or convinces people to follow Jesus. That is a work of God that's outside of us. We just need to be faithful to proclaim the truth wherever we go and whatever opportunity God brings to us. In Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, we're just reminded of the same thing. It says, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. It's God who enlightens our hearts. It's God who opens our eyes to the hope that we have in him. So leave the results up to God. Don't don't stop sharing because you had a bad experience or because somebody didn't respond the way that you hoped that they would. Keep praying for them. Keep telling them the good news, every opportunity that you get. I think it's really interesting that within 200 years of Paul's address to the Athenians, at a time where... The pagan worship was just rampant when Paul stood before these men. But within 200 years, Christianity had swept the entire empire. It was the main religion within 200 years. So it started with Paul just sprinkling a few seeds of truth and just seeing a few people come to God. It was just the beginning of a snowball effect that we're still part of today. The gospel is powerful, and Jesus is always relevant, so don't get discouraged when you don't see the results. Just continue proclaiming the gospel. As we're getting ready to close, I think that there are two different groups that I want to speak to. There's a call to action here for each of us in this message. The first group of people I want to encourage this morning, and I'm speaking to myself here, is if you are a follower of Jesus, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're a new Christian, if you are following Jesus, step out in faith and in boldness. Your community needs you. Just like the scripture said when Paul told the Athenians, the Lord has determined this particular time and place for you to live, that that you might seek him out and that you might know him. And he has determined this particular time and place for you to live in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, in your families, because people need the good news of Jesus. He is always relevant. Whatever your circle of influence is struggling with, whatever doubts, whatever disappointments, whatever hurts, whatever frustrations, Jesus is the only answer. So for those of us walking with Jesus, let's show up in boldness. Let's know our audience. Let's find common ground. Let's trust the gospel. It's compelling. And let's leave the results up to God. And then the second group that I want to speak to is those of you who aren't following Jesus. Maybe you're just here because you're checking out church. Maybe somebody bribed you with lunch or maybe the golf tournament. But for whatever reason that you're here, it's not an accident that you're here this morning. And the call to action for you, the invitation to you is to test the gospel. Put your weight on Jesus. He can stand up to your scrutiny. He can handle all of your doubts and all of your questions. You don't have to get it all figured out. But the gospel is compelling and Jesus is relevant. He is the only answer to whatever it is that you are struggling through today, whether it's hardship or maybe even it's joy that leaves you a little bit empty because he's the ultimate purpose, the ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate hope. It's all found in him. So if you haven't chosen to trust Jesus yet, maybe today's the day. Maybe that's the action for you today is to just say, you know what, Jesus, I'm with you. I believe in your life, your death, and your resurrection. And I'm going to follow you. I don't know what that means or what it's going to look like, but today I'm going to start. Our church, our desire as a, a local expression of the church here at Novation is that we do life together, that we are a group of people at different places along the journey seeking to follow Jesus, to pray together, to lift each other up, to walk through the celebrations and the hard times together, growing in our understanding of who God is and proclaiming him To each other within the walls of the church and as we go out into our lives where the lord has planted us so i'm going to pray for us as we get ready to go but if you would like prayer this morning or if you have questions our leaders will make themselves available up here please don't walk out if there's even a little bit of like oh i would like to talk with somebody or i would like to pray with somebody take that first step of boldness and come on up to one of our leaders this morning let's pray jesus thank you that you are always relevant in every situation in every culture in every time period you are king of kings and lord of lords and we just proclaim your goodness and your grace and your glory this morning god as we go from here let us leave encouraged and willing to step out in faith whether that's a phone call to a friend maybe an apology or maybe acknowledging for the first time our own need for you, the Savior. Thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.